Keeping it real with Jared Lawrence. Now it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us. The pilot said over the public address system, we are sorry for the delay. But we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked. And to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane, we had to check out everything carefully. And we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. And then I got into Memphis. And some began to say the threats, or talk about the threats that were out. Uh, what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Welcome to Keeping It Real with Jared Lawrence. I'm your host. Jared Lawrence. As you all are aware, today is MLK Day, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, um, January 17th, 2022. It is a federal holiday, and I figured I'm going to do this right today by honoring him on this show. I was going to get to topics, but I have so much that I want to talk about with MLK that honestly... Probably not going to get to any topics outside of MLK today, but this is one of those episodes where I, I want everybody to listen because there's a lot to be learned. Even me, I'm still learning. I'm still reading. I'm still watching videos of his speeches. There's just so much information out there about Martin Luther King. So I think this is um, something that everybody can take something away from, maybe something positive. Maybe we can help get this world back on track. But I say all that to say, I'm trying to do some things different in my life. I know you guys have heard me talk about this in the last couple episodes, maybe even up to like last year where I just, I've been on my phone so much and I feel like it's been distracting me of being productive. It's been causing me some issues and I've been trying to find ways to get back on track in my life. And I think I finally come up with um, something that might work. So 
I decided last night, or actually it was like yesterday during the day, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to start turning my phone off before I go to bed. I said, I'm going to turn it off before I go to bed, and then in the morning, I'll leave it off. Although I did have to turn it on briefly this morning because I went to McDonald's to get my 99-cent coffee, so I needed the phone on so I could access the app because it has to be on app. But after that, turned it back off, checked it like halfway through the day just to make sure there was nothing um, urgent or important. Luckily, nobody had even texted me, so... I was like, all right, this is pretty good. This is working pretty well. So I think from now on, I'm just going to turn my phone off for like part of the day, maybe periods of the day. I've been like tinkering with little things here and there. I tried putting it in um, airplane mode to see if that would be better than turning it off. And I didn't like that. I don't know. I, I felt like I was still going to look at my phone and taking it out of airplane mode to check messages and group texts and stuff. But when it's off, it's like more of a commitment to turn it on and back off and stuff. So I think leaving it off, probably best case scenario, just because it helps me um, stay focused throughout the day. I feel like I was very productive today. Still not like peak level productiveness, but I got a good amount done. I watched the um, MLK. I have a dream speech. I watched the I've been to the mountaintop speech. Uh, I'm going to watch some more MLK content on YouTube after I'm done recording this podcast i'm gonna read um uh, gonna start reading his book where do we go from here chaos or community and i'll probably you know give y'all i'll check back in on later episodes let you know how i like the book and what i'm learning from it but i'm telling you turning the phone off might be the best solution though so if you guys are like struggling like me with like looking at your phone all day i would say probably try to turn it off for like a little bit during the day and just it gives you more time to yourself. You're more focused on what you need to do. So I would recommend that. So I want to talk a little bit about what I've learned. I want to play some speeches. Part well, not I'm not gonna play the whole speech because I do want to like tell everybody you should go listen to these speeches on your own. Because I mean, the I have a dream speech is a little over 16 minutes, and the I've been to the mountaintop speech is about 43 minutes. So I'm not gonna play the whole speeches on the podcast because I want to play clips of them and then come and talk about different parts of the speech. So I would just um, encourage everybody, if you have any spare time, or if you're looking for something MLK related, two great speeches to listen to, but I do want to talk about both of them and kind of talk about the differences in them and, and the similarities in them. So I figured I'd start it out with the, I have a, I have a dream speech because that's, that's the most famous speech. But also if you weren't aware, that speech happened in 1963. So that was um, the March on America, or the, I think, no, the March on something. The, that was the March on Washington in 1963. And the reason for that um, march was it was the 100-year anniversary of the Emancipation Procl Proclamation, which, as you know, is the end of slavery, although Juneteenth, we later found out, was the official end of slavery because the word didn't get to the slaves in Texas that they were free for another two years. So... Yes, he had the uh, I Have a Dream speech originally, 1963, um, to celebrate what they thought was the original ending of slavery. Although, I mean, Lincoln did sign the slavery, the Emancipation Proclamation, so that's probably why, you know, everybody assumed it was the end. But without further ado, I wanted to give y'all some quotes from these speeches, too, and then I'll talk about them. This speech, he starts out, 
um, basically talking about how America, and this is a direct quote. He says, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. So I'll play that clip of him kind of speaking on that, and then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about it. It's obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America. So yeah, there he's talking about how America has basically given us insufficient funds. They are not holding up their end of the bargain. You know, we are not being treated equally. So we need to come back and uh, return this bad check because the check that they've given us are basically what the promises they've given us are not what we thought they would be. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. As you can see in this speech, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because everybody always talks about the I have a dream speech and they always talk about the I have a dream part. Like, oh, he was all about peace and happiness and blah, blah, blah. And yes, he did talk about that. And we'll get to that part later. But as you can see, Martin, is he's, st he's starting the speech off kind of getting to it and letting you guys know what the issue is and what we need to do to fix it. It's not all peaches and cream like. So I think when people talk about the I have a dream speech, they they always leave out these parts of it that I'm going to play you guys where he's kind of telling you the problems that we have in this country. And well, like I said, we'll talk about that a little bit further because we will get to the I have a dream part. And I'll I'll even like let you guys know a little bit of stuff about the I have a dream part of the speech because there's there are some little known facts about it. So we'll get to that. I thought another quote he had um, from this speech that I wrote down because I wrote down a lot of stuff that I thought was just interesting. He said, 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. So basically what he's also saying is like, no, this is not the end. Like we're fighting for equality, but once we get that, we still have a ways to go. It's not, it's not going to end here. Whereas people think, when you talk to certain people and they're telling you how racism's over and all this and you ask them when and they're like, they're like, oh, when Martin Luther King gave the I have a dream speech and you're like, um, no, no. Martin Luther King was basically telling you what he wants the country to be. We're not there yet. So a lot of people always get that part mixed up. So I'm glad he um, I'm glad he said that in this speech about it not being the end, but the beginning, because really it was, as you can tell, like it was a hundred year anniversary of the end of slavery. Yet there was still segregation going on. So we still had a ways to go. He also said 
Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. Now, this is what I, I like from him, because although he's saying that, America, you've done a shitty job of treating black people. We don't need to be mad and angry at you guys. Well, we don't need to let that get in the way, I guess, of our quest for freedom because it's going to like impede the process. And I'll play him talking about it a little more just because he probably explains it better than me. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must be able to conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvelous new militancy, which has engulfed the Negro community, must not lead us to a distrust of all white people. For many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is Okay, so something important he says there, I don't know if you guys caught it, but he says basically we don't need to go to violence and we don't need to push the white brothers down because a lot of them are in the crowd today. So he's basically saying we have alliances, we have allies on the other side, so we don't need to be mean and treat all white people bad, which is something still true till today. Like, yes, there are evil white people out there, but there are also good white people out there and there's also evil black people out there and there's good black people. So you can't just treat a whole race based on the actions and doings of one. It's obvious. Um, I don't even know why I have to say it, but of course we have people out there and, and I'll say this: like, even when we all talk bad about the police and yes, they, they've been bad in the, in the past and they've done a lot of bad, but you can't act like every police person or every policeman or woman is bad because there's a lot of good police out there too and when you think about it like when we get mad at at white people thinking that all black people are bad we're like no there might be some bad ones but there's a lot of good ones too it's probably similar to that when it comes to police so just some food for thought i know look i'm not putting the blue lives matter sticker on trust me but i'm just saying you got to look at it a little more openly because there are some out there. There are probably a lot of police out there that want good for this country. So similar to what Martin Luther King was saying about treating white people good because there's a lot of good uh, white people who are on our side. I'm sure there's police officers out there. Of course, there's a lot of black police officers out there who are down for our causes too and want to see us get to the top. And we just have to remember that, that it's not a whole group that we're going against. We're just trying to get rid of all the bad ones and we're trying to get back on the same page as far as everybody being treated equal. Also something that MLK talked about that I thought was interesting because a lot, like I said, when we talk about the I have a dream speech, nobody really wants to get to the nitty gritty of this speech and a lot of the things he was talking about. So before he even gets to the I have a dream part, he also says 
We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. So there you have it. Martin Luther King talking about police brutality in 1963 is an issue we are still dealing with today in 2022. But I'm glad to hear him talk about that because when people reference this speech, they always make it seem like it was all rosy and it wasn't. It was definitely more to it than just let's sing and hold hands and walk in away happily ever after. So I want to play this part for you guys so you can get an idea of what Martin Luther King was talking about here. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. So it's pretty self-explanatory what he's saying there. It's like we still have these issues of police brutality. We haven't even got to the dream part. So he's still just getting back. He's still getting into like basically what the issues are in the country at this time, 1963. And as he starts to wind down the speech, this is when we get to the I have a dream part. This is um, basically, and I, a lot of people don't know this, this is the little known fact from the speech. He's reading, if you watch the speech, you can go on YouTube and you watch it. He's reading this whole speech off of paper. You can see him looking down. He's glancing up every now and then to read or to look at the crowd. But for the most part, He's reading the speech off of a piece of paper. You can see has, as he's following what has been written. Now, legend has it, and I, I've been looking, trying to confirm it, but from what I've been basically been able to find so far, and I always knew about this, but I didn't know the person who did it, but from what I'm seeing uh, in my research and just looking at videos and news articles, they said gospel singer Mahalia Jackson yelled out to him in the middle of the speech, tell them about the dream. So when she says, tell them about the dream, that's kind of when he goes off script and starts to talk about, I have a dream. And that's the, I have a dream portion of this speech, but that was not written in the original speech. He was not going to even say that. So if Mahalia Jackson didn't tell him to talk about it, history is rewritten. There is no, I have a dream. Like this is not even talked about. So it's just phenomenal how he's able to ad lib into this whole I have a dream part of the speech, which um becomes later becomes the I have a dream speech. So as you can see, like without him even going into the I have a dream part, who even knows what the speech is called? Who even knows if it has the same impact if people are talking about it? But basically, because he went into the I have a dream part of the speech, that's why you have all these people today who only reference that part of the speech. Nobody talks about these other parts I've outlined with him talking about the bad check. This is not the end, the beginning. Uh, freedom. We don't want to have bitterness and hatred. Police brutality. Nobody talks about that part. 
it's kind of interesting to me how they only want to talk about the I have a dream part. But I mean, if you think about it, that's kind of how history's always been. When it when um it comes to America, people are very uncomfortable talking about things that they are not comfortable talking about as far as like racism and all that. They only want to talk about the good stuff. So I see now why everybody only references the I have a dream part is speech. But I'm I'm letting y'all know there was more to it before then. As Mahalia Jackson tells him to talk about the dream, he starts talking about the dream. And I would encourage everybody to go watch this on YouTube because you can see he looks up and he stares at the camera and he doesn't look back down at the paper the whole time he talks about the I have a dream part. So it's just very fascinating after you know this part to go back and watch it. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low the rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together this is our hope this is a faith that I go back to the south with with this faith we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, so at this point, 
he's going back to reading the paper. But everything about the dream is ad lib. That's off the top. That's off the dome. I much respect to Martin Luther King for being able to galvanize the crowd and just get everybody excited about that. And it's just a truly historic moment. It's, it's incredible, man. Especially when you go back and watch that speech. It starts out a little slow just because, you know, he's kind of letting you know what the issues are. But when he gets to the I have a dream part, it picks up. You can see the crowd getting very excited, very into it. So, like I said, if it wasn't for Mahalia Jackson, who, who knows where history even stands with Martin Luther King, especially with the I have a dream part, because that's probably the biggest moment in history. A lot of people have used it. I think a lot of people use it in the wrong ways, too, just because, like I said, you have people who don't want to address the issues head on. So they always want to talk about the I have a dream part because it's a very positive part of the speech. But if you listen to that whole speech, he's giving you a little negative. He's giving you positive. He's giving you the real. And I think that's what you need to listen to. Go listen to that whole speech, not just the little clip of I have a dream. But after this, we're going to move on to my favorite speech so far. And this is I've been to the mountaintop. Now, I do love I have a dream. It's a great speech. I, I mean, five mic speech in history. But I've been to the mountaintops of five mic too. And I've been to the mountaintops, a longer speech, 43 minutes long. I'm not going to play the whole thing, but we're going to, we're going to talk about it. Cause this one's a little darker. This one is a little bit more real, a little bit more gritty. I opened the show with him. Basically that's how he closed out the, I've been to the mountaintop speech, basically telling you he sees his end coming, his demise coming. He feels it. He knows they're after him. He knows he's not going to be here long but he's content with what he's accomplished so far. And I just love this speech. It's the magnificent speech. And we are going to kick it off with a couple quotes and then we'll, we'll play a clip, but he starts it out. And the, the first quote that comes to mind from this speech for me is when he says, only when it is dark enough, can you see the stars? So he's basically saying you have to go through those dark times to even see the glimmer of hope see those stars in the sky you're not gonna see them if it's not dark so dark times are needed in life we all go through them it's just how you come out on the other side and then he also says we got to stay together and maintain unity because as if you don't know what this speech is about basically he goes he's in memphis the sanitation workers in memphis are on strike uh dr king goes to memphis to speak with them and basically, he's on their side in the strike, but he's also telling us as a whole in the black community that we all have to stick together and be on their side, too. So I'll play what he's saying there. He goes into a little bit more of detail on it. Let me get it right. Saying that we are God's children. And that we are God's children, we don't have to live like we are forced to live. Now, what does all of this mean in this great period of history? It means that we've got to stay together. We've got to stay together and maintain unity. You know, whenever Pharaoh wanted to prolong the period of slavery in Egypt, he had a favorite, favorite formula for doing it. What was that? He kept the slaves fighting among themselves. 
But whenever the slaves get together, something happens in Pharaoh's court, and he cannot hold the slaves in slavery. When the slaves get together, that's the beginning of getting out of slavery. Now let us maintain unity. Secondly, that's that's a very important part of the speech right there. I love it. Telling us basically that we have to stay together, maintain unity, because as you know, once we get once we gather together and um think as a whole, especially as black people, man, we're unstoppable. History has shown that. You saw the slaves, the ones that freed themselves were the ones who gathered together and um maintained unity. So I completely agree with everything he's saying there. And I think it's very important just in the overall way of things, the overall plan, just maintaining that unity, sticking together as black people. And we'll, we'll get a little bit more into that as we go further into the speech. But after that, he talks about mastering the nonviolent movement. And a lot of people hate the nonviolent movement. A lot of people are more Malcolm than Martin. And I'll say this, I'll say this about the whole nonviolent thing. I know a lot of y'all don't believe in it. I know a lot of y'all believe in violence is the answer, but I, I, I've said this before on the podcast and I'll say it again. Yes, we've been nonviolent in the past and it hasn't worked, but we've also been violent in the past and it hasn't worked. Like there's literally riots every time something happens and nothing gets done on that side either. So the whole we need violence to get stuff done, I'm not buying it. Even though after Martin Luther King died, there was riots. So I'm not buying it. Rodney King, we had riots. We just had riots and uh, George Floyd. So there, if you look at history, we've always had riots. We, we've always had violence. Not sure what has come of that on the positive side. So I agree with Dr. King about mastering the nonviolent movement. And I'll let him speak more on it because he, as I've said before, makes more sense. We aren't going to let any may stop us. We are masters in our nonviolent movement police forces they don't know what to do i've seen them so often i remember in birmingham alabama when we were in that majestic struggle there we would move out of the 16th street baptist church day after day by the hundreds we would move out and bull connor would tell them to send the dogs for and they did come, but we just went before the dog singing, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. <laughs> Bull Connor next would say, turn the fire hoses on. And as I said to you the other night, Bull Connor didn't know history. He knew a kind of physics that somehow didn't relate to the trans physics that we knew about. And that was the fact that there was a certain kind of fire that no water could put out. And we went before the fire hoses. We had known water. If we were Baptists or some other denominations, we had been immersed. If we were Methodists and some others, we had been sprinkled, but we knew water. That couldn't stop us. And 
we just went on before the dogs and we would look at them and we'd go on before the water hoses and we would look at it and we'd just go on singing over my head, I see freedom in there. So it's very important what he's saying here about just staying nonviolent through it because a lot of times in the, in the 60s, white people were going to try to get you to resort to violence just so they could probably try to kill you or do who, who knows what. So I agree there. Nonviolent was the way to go. And he said something that, very, that stuck with me right there. He said, we know water. He said, if, you, if you're a Baptist, you've been immersed in water, which is basically he's saying, if you're a Baptist, you've been baptized. You've been dipped in that water. So you shouldn't be scared of water. If you're Catholic, you've had water sprinkled on you. So we know water. Strong words right there by Dr. King. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know why everybody hates the nonviolent movement. I feel like as black people, we not only have to move nonviolently, but we have to move strategically. I think to me, more than being nonviolent or violent is just strategy, man. Being smart about how we move. And uh, I'll get to that in a little bit because he talks about that too. But he also says, be true to what you said on paper. And this, this is when the speech starts picking up. This is when the crowd is getting riled up and everybody's starting to, I mean, it's already a great speech. Like everybody's already hanging on to every word, but you can tell he's starting to get into a groove here. This is probably a turning point in the speech for me. Constitutional injunction. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country. Maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest for rights. Yeah, he's spitting, man. He is spitting at this point. He said the greatness of America is the right to protest Four rights. Drop a bomb. And you also hear him talk about like China and these other countries. And basically he's saying we don't live there. So, you know, that's why we have an expectation here because we have a first amendment. Whereas on those other countries, they don't, they don't have the first amendment. They don't have free speech and all that. So because we're in America, and we have that. We just want to be, you know, we want to be part of the amendment, the Constitution. Let us into the party. The stuff that white people are, like, getting to enjoy, we want to enjoy it, too. That's all he's saying. And he's starting, to, he's starting to heat up here. He also throws in something later on about preachers, and this has nothing to do with that part. But he says, so often, preachers aren't concerned about anything but themselves. I think that line still holds up to today. A lot of preachers, instead of, like, helping people, are more concerned about the image of being a preacher. They're just happy to be in the limelight, and a lot of them abuse it. 
a lot of them are out here sleeping with the the congregation. I mean, Martin Luther King wasn't without his fault either. A lot of people said he committed a lot of adultery and probably did, but he was also honest in admitting that he was an imperfect human. And I think that's why we all love him because although he seems like this godlike figure, he never portrayed himself like that. Like he didn't make himself, he didn't make himself seem like he was above everything. Now humans, we probably make him seem like that. But when you listen to him talk and all the actions that he's done, he never did it. He never came off like that the way he was trying to act. So a lot of preachers are the opposite. They're acting like that. Never got that um, feeling with MLK. And that's why I respect him. Next part. This is my type of speech here. This is my type of segment of speech. He's starting to talk about the economy and he talks about the power of the black dollar. Now y'all, I want everybody to listen very closely to this part of the speech because this is important. This is stuff I always talk about on this show. And I'm just glad that he's saying it too. And um, when I say we need to move more strategically, he's telling us how. And we'll have to do is this. Always anchor our external direct action with the power of economic withdrawal. Now we are poor people. Individually, we are poor when you compare us with white society in America. We are poor. Never stop forget that collectively, that means all of us together, collectively we are richer than all the nations in the world with the exception of nine. Did you ever think about that? After you leave the United States, Soviet Russia, Great Britain, West Germany, France, and I can name others, the American Negro collectively is richer than most nations of the world. We have an annual income of more than $30 billion a year, which is more than all of the exports of the United States and more than the national budget of Canada. Did you know that? That's power right there if we know how to pool it. We don't have to argue with anybody. We don't have to curse and go around acting bad with our words. We don't need any bricks and bottles. We don't need any Molotov cocktails. We just need to go around to these stores and to these massive industries in our country and say, God sent us by here to say to you that you're not treating his children right. And we come by here to ask you to make the first item on your agenda fair treatment where God's children are concerned. Now, if you are not prepared to do that, we do have an agenda that we must follow. And our agenda calls for withdrawing economic support from you. 
So as you see, he's talking about the power of the black dollar and how we are richer than almost everybody except um, nine of the the other nine, uh, what he said, the nations or whatever. You know, so that's something to think about. Like, it may seem like black people are, are in poverty here and our money is, is not really doing anything, but when you put all that money together, we have a lot of power. We have a lot of power. We can make things happen. We can make these companies act right. We can make them hire more black people, increase our wages. Like he's just breaking it all down. And this is why this speech is so good because he's giving us a blueprint to follow. Even though he's no longer with us, he's leaving us with the words that we need. And he also says at the end that the money is more powerful than the Molotov cocktail, the bottles, like any of that stuff you're using to loot or cause destruction, our money is more powerful than that. And that's something that I've been trying to say that most people don't get, but everybody wants to say we need to go to violence. And I'm like, yo, our money can make more happen than any type of violence you're thinking. Trust me and believe me. We take that money out of the trap. Y'all stop selling drugs. Um, we stop buying all this expensive clothing that we can't afford. Stop buying cars that we can't afford. Going out to eat every night. Like you start putting your money into the right places, some stuff will get done. Now, Martin, um, as you know, Jesse Jackson was a good friend of Martin Luther King. He was actually there on the balcony when he was shot. And he mentions Jesse Jackson in this speech. He says, Jesse Jackson had said up to now, only the garbage men have been feeling pain. Now we must kind of redistribute the pain. And that's basically what I'm saying. What, what he was trying to explain is um, whatever we want, like if we want the economy to feel a way, we can redistribute that with our money. Like we can withhold money from other businesses and we can really shake this thing up. Another thing that Martin Luther King Jr. said that was very important to me and very interesting is that we got to strengthen the black institutions. He's talking about the banks and the insurance companies, et cetera, in Memphis. He said, Pull your money out of those other banks. Put your money into the black banks. Put your money into black insurance companies. Strengthen them. And then we'll begin the process of building a great economic base and put pressure where it really hurts. I can't argue with that. Uh, the great Claude Anderson has said similar things in the past. Like, if we build our own base up in the black community, you know, that'll go a long way. And you look at all these other all these other races, nationalities, like every city you go to, you see a Chinatown, you see uh, the Jewish areas, even the Spanish areas, Mexican, Puerto Rican, like they all have their little areas where they keep that money in those areas and they distribute it, redistribute it, spend like they all have the blueprint down. And I feel like as a black community, we don't, we're on the way to doing it when we had places like uh, Greenwood where black wall street was. And then of course it was destroyed, but, since then, I don't know. I haven't really seen it. I'd say the closest we probably come to having that type of place is probably Atlanta. Atlanta's very black. A lot of black people in power there. But still, probably not where we need to be as far as black institutions and, and spending our money with black people. We're probably not there even in Atlanta. So that's something we need to work on going forward. He said, nothing would be more tragic then the stop in Memphis, we got to see it through. 
So basically Martin Luther King saying is like, just cause I'm here giving this speech in Memphis, it doesn't stop here. This has to continue and go outside of Memphis into other cities and States. I wholeheartedly agree with that. He said, either we go up together or we go down together. And that's just, that's simple. Like either we're going to win or we're going to lose together. Like, it's not going to be one person makes it and leaves everybody else. Like we got to do this together. Arrested development said back in the day, uh, United, we stand united. We fall, but you know, united, we fight as a united front. So that's similar to what Dr. Martin Luther King was saying there. And then he also tells a story of driving in Jerusalem with his wife, Coretta Scott King, we're getting to the end of the speech here, but I will play this story and then I'll come back and uh, we'll wrap it up. So he tells this story about being in Jerusalem and basically it'll make sense once you hear the whole story. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. That's right, that's right. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 miles or rather 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, you are about 2,200 feet below sea level. That's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the bloody paths. You know it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking. And he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, love them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by, and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's the question before you tonight. Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to my job? Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to all of the hours that I usually spend in my office every day and every week as a pastor? The question is not if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question is if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? That's the question. And as you can see, he's saying that you have to help the person in need because what will happen to them if they don't, you know, it's not about what will happen to you if you don't help them. 
You got to stop being greedy. Stop thinking about yourself and think about others. So in these fights, especially these fights for equality, we have to ask ourselves what will happen to the other person if we do not help them. White people ask that about us. You need to ask yourselves what will happen to us if you guys do not help us. So like I said, it's a great speech. I would encourage everybody to go listen to the whole thing because it's hitting, man. Like, he is dropping a lot of gems, a lot of bombs. Like, I, was, I dropped one bomb earlier and something he said that was good. He's saying a lot in these speeches, both of them. But sadly, this speech was on April 3rd, 1968. Martin Luther King was assassinated on April 4th, 1968. So the very next day after he gave this speech, he was killed. Now, history says it was James Earl Ray who did it. I personally do not believe James Earl Ray killed Martin Luther King. On his deathbed, James Earl Ray said he did not do it, even though he admitted earlier he did it. He retracted that later before he died. I believe him. I don't think he did. Now, who did it? That's up to your imagination. <laughs> I think we all have our ideas, but um, I'm pretty comfortable saying it wasn't James Earl Ray. And it's, it's sad that we lost such an icon like Martin Luther King. But it's just, it's crazy to me, man. It's wild how he knew that he was going to die soon. And he, he wanted to bless us with these gems before his life was tragically ended. So the last thing I'm going to play is basically him talking about a near-death experience he had had earlier, years earlier, and that how he was happy to still be here to get this message out. And it's very chilling. And it's very powerful. But it's a great way to end this show. So I just want to thank everybody who's tuned in. Hopefully you learned a little bit about Martin Luther King Jr. If you didn't, there's always YouTube. There's plenty of books to read. I have two that I'm going to start reading. And one is The Radical King, which is going to talk about his uh, more radical side. And the Where Do We Go From Here book. I also would recommend Letter from a Birmingham Jail and Why We Can't Wait. Both two great choices if you're looking for books to read about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But like I said, thank you for tuning in, and I will leave you with some final words from the I Have Been to the Mountaintop speech. This is Keeping It Real with Jared Lawrence. I'll catch you next episode. We have an opportunity to make America a better nation. And I want to thank God once more for allowing me to be here with you. You know, several years ago, I was in New York City autographing the first book that I had written. And while sitting there autographing books, a demented black woman came up. The only question I heard from her was, are you Martin Luther King? And I was looking down writing and I said, yes. The next minute, I felt something beating on my chest. Before I knew it, I had been stabbed by this demented woman. I was rushed to Harlem Hospital. It was a dark Saturday afternoon. That blade had gone through, and the x-rays revealed that the tip of the blade was on the edge of my aorta, the main artery. And once that's punctured, 
You drowned in your own blood. That's the end of you. It came out in the New York Times the next morning that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. Well, about four days later, they allowed me, after the operation, after my chest had been opened and the blade had been taken out, to move around in the wheelchair in the hospital. They allowed me to read some of the mail that came in, and from all over the states and the world, kind letters came in. I read a few, but one of them I will never forget. I had received one from the president and the vice president. I've forgotten what those telegrams said. I'd received a visit and a letter from the governor of New York, but I've forgotten what that letter said. But there was another letter that came from a little girl, a young girl, who was a student at the White Plains High School. And I looked at that letter, and I'll never forget it. It said simply, Dear Dr. King, I am a ninth grade student at the White Plains High School. She said, while it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering. And I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died. And I'm simply writing you to say that I'm so happy that you didn't sneeze. And I want to say tonight, I want to say tonight that I, too, am happy that I didn't sneeze, because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960, when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. And I knew that as they were sitting in, they were really standing up for the best in the American dream and taking the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy, which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been around here in 1961 when we decided to take a ride for freedom and ended segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1962 when Negroes in Albany, Georgia, decided to straighten their backs up and whenever men and women straighten their backs up, they are going somewhere because a man can't ride your back unless it is bent. If I had sneezed, if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been here in 1963. The black people of Birmingham, Alabama, aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill, if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have had a chance later that year in August to try to tell America about a dream that I had had, if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama, to see the great movement there, if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been in Memphis, to see a community rally around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. 
I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze.